So as we jump in the passage this morning, it's significant to see what was just read for us on the issue of the blind man receiving his sight. It's important that we see it within the tapestry of Luke, the the entire context of what's going on here. It'll, It'll stand out to us that much more, the significance of what is taking place with the blind beggar as we see it in its larger context of what we've been covering for a portion of time. Just to briefly uh, note to you how verse 35 and following makes sense based on all that has been said through 18, but immediately from 31 to 34. You remember last week, if you look in the text of verse 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man, and here's what I want you to key in on, on understanding the text before us this morning for now. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And we talked last week just briefly about what that accomplishment is implying, right? That he's been sent to accomplish something particular. Again, his death is not off the radar for him. He knows that he's going to die. As he then explains, um, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles who will be mocked, shamefully treated, and spat upon flogged, and then he'll be killed, Uh, and it ends in victory. A third day he will rise, as we confess in the Nicene Creed. Um, So so he's here, not his death to be an accident or incidental, but purposely, he's here to accomplish through the cross the resurrection. He's to lay down his life for his people. But notice, if we say there's two reasons why, as we looked at the text last week, two reasons why he was sent, or the things about which he is to accomplish. You recall, we said, number one, it was to glorify God and to bring salvation to his people, as expressed in that text we just looked at. Well, if he says, this is why I've come, and this is the work that I have to accomplish, guess what the next narrative shows? him accomplishing the work he's been sent here to do. Notice the blind beggar. By the time you get to the end of his blindness um, in verse 35, right? So then we're looking at, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to accomplish exactly what I've been sent here to do, and no one can stop it. I will fulfill it. I'll bring salvation to my people, and I will bring glory to God. Well, Here's a blind man. Look over at the end of the text in order to see how this is working itself out. In other words, Jesus here with the blind beggar is accomplishing what he has been sent here to do. How so? Well, look at verse 41. What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, sure, right? Recover your sight. But he's been here, right, to accomplish Look at the second statement. For your faith has made you well. Interesting. It's not, and this is an important piece of faith, right? We can't be made well by having faith in faith. Faith is an instrumental means, an extraordinary one, but that is merely what faith is. It's like saying uh, a hammer built a house. Well, no. The hammer is an instrument in the hands of a carpenter who then built the house. Faith in faith doesn't save. We're not people of faith. We're people belonging to the Lord. 
Our faith rests in him, in him alone. This man wasn't saved because he had enough. He rightly had placed it upon its truest object. That is incredibly important because we'll hear at different points in times that, you know, by circumstance, if you just have faith, if you just exercise faith, faith healing, right? You, well, you weren't healed because you lacked faith, right? Right here, your faith has made you well. Faith in faith doesn't save anyone. Merely assenting and throwing out faith in some sort of thing or, or yourself or in some object doesn't make you well. The faith that made this man well is it terminated on its truest object. But then, so he's accomplishing this work of saving his people. Your faith has made you well. And then the second part of why he was even sent, this is why I was sent, and I'm going to accomplish it, was to save my people and bring glory to God. Look at verse 43. And again, my point is, this isn't just by coincidence written right after he says, this is what I'm all about. In other words, here comes a blind man, case in point to strengthen our faith that indeed that is what he has come to do and he has accomplished. Verse 43 is the second part of his mission. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. And here's the second piece of the accomplishments of Christ, glorifying God. This is why I was sent. And again, I can't read preach it, even though I'm going way off my manuscript at this point in time about this morning's sermon. I'm going to have to look for a few minutes and find out where we're at. But the, the point is, this is anchored in John 17. This is why I came, to bring you glory and to perform the work that you sent me to do. And here it is. A blind man might receive his sight, but it's not just simply about his physical sight. Your faith has made you well because it's terminated on its truest object. That's why I came. And that all would see it and bring glory to God. This man followed him and gave glory to God. But not just that. Look at faith's influence. Look at how it arises upon people who see the beauty of exercised faith. Verse 43, and immediately he recovered his sight, and he followed him, glorifying God and all the people. When they saw it, they gave praise to God. This is the work of Christ. This is why he came, and this is what he's accomplishing and he will fill it in the greatest hour as we move toward Jerusalem and the passion of the cross. In fact, this story here is one of the very last conversion stories that we're going to read about in Luke. It, we're, we're so close to Jerusalem in its time period, it's hard to say how many days away from Jerusalem we are. We here will be multiple Sundays from Jerusalem. Um, but, but nonetheless, in real life, in the first century, he's pretty close to Jerusalem, a few days from this event. And this is one of the very last public conversions that we're going to read about in Luke. It's significant what he does here for the man of blindness, and it speaks directly to us this morning in significant ways. I want you to concentrate and think on the theme for a moment, the theme of blindness. This text intensifies the idea of blindness. Notice what I mean. Again, each text, we're going to see the final conclusion. I hope if I can hurry my way through and I can get to it. This text stands in great contrast to the rich young ruler. This is all working together to confront you, to confront me about our faith. Where does it rest? How are we acting on it? And, and, and here's this blind man that's going to stand out as, 
a word of instruction to us about our own faith because there's this theme about blindness here that we need to wrestle with. Look how, what I mean if we jump on to verse 32. Again, I'm just going to read the text. But I don't, I don't want you to lose um, verse 35 because there's a space gap in your English text there. Uh, don't, don't keep going, right? So, so it's like, well, that, that, that stands alone, and then we have a space gap, a new title in our English text, therefore it's a new episode. Don't do that. Keep reading. Verse 32, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now we're making our segue into 35. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. So Luke fills in why they're not understanding. Now, again, how it's being hid from them, why it's being hid from them, in, in, in many ways for us right now in this moment, it's neither here nor there. Press on to bridging the gap between the two texts as one piece of tapestry. It says, and they did not grasp what was being said. Think about that just for a moment. They didn't understand these things, and then it's being hidden from them. And by the way, I want you to understand again by repeat, they did not grasp what he said to them. In other words, there's a loss of perception. There's an inability to see. No, he's there physically. Jesus is standing right there, and he just told them what he's going to do, and he's going to accomplish it. And it's nothing new. It's been going on since the prophets. And they're there, and they see it, and they hear it, and they do not see it. They don't perceive it. Do you see a type of, I don't know, blindness is at work in the text? Well, in order to further this idea of an inability to see, an inability to perceive, that's going to confront each and every one of us this morning. Look at how, not by accident, the very next episode in verse 35, verse 34 first. I have to read it again. Verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And, and again, to reiterate, they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And what we're about to see in the two episodes made one is that Luke is sharing with us. Indeed, he is impressing upon us, each of us this morning. There is more than one way to lack sight. There is more than one way to be able to see. This is significant to the church hearing the word of the Lord this morning. The disciples saw, but they did not see. There's a blind man who cannot see by virtue of physical blindness. But I'll give away the ending now. 
he's the only one in the group who can see. That, that doesn't, no, he's blind. Right? Because there's more than one way to exercise sight. And this also reaches up into the text where Jesus had told us, this is coming. Verse 31. We've already covered it like 10 times, but so quickly. Everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Isaiah 6, can I read it for you just by way of reaching right back up into the text? That this episode, too, is a part of accomplishment. This also is a part of prophetic fulfillment. Isaiah 6 says, quote, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Do you, do you see the difference? There's more than one way to exercise sight. There's more than one way to be blind. Well, how do you see? How do you exercise sight? No, no, you will see, but you will never perceive. And then he gives the grounds for how this is possible. Phenomenologically possible. How is it possible? I can see while not seeing. What? The grounds for it, Isaiah says, for this people's heart. Do you see where sight is located? The kind of seeing that matters. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. So we join in the text this morning with the difference that I want to, us to see from Luke's perspective about prophetic fulfillment, about the work of Christ, about the blind man in the episode, about the disciples who are still kind of not seeing. That there is a vital difference I want to impress upon you this morning. I think this is what Luke is impressing upon each of us, is that there is a vital difference between seeing and perceiving. Or instead of perceiving, we'd say apprehending. But there, it's not inconsequential. It's critical. There is a vital difference. That is like between life and death. A vital difference between seeing on the one hand and perceiving on the other. Look at the text as it's shown to us by Luke, joining in verse 35. I hate to join 35 because I, I, I've, I've argued so hard for 34, jumping right into 35, but you, you, you know you're supposed to just remember that at this point. As he drew near to Jerusalem, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. Now, verse 37, I have to finish the, the comment there. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, again, the point of this text, as it develops, is going to be that there are two layers of blindness being introduced to you at this moment. There are two layers. The first one is the obvious one. Um, there's a blind man, physically blind. So if I was to say to you, Luke is introducing to you a concept of blindness. 
you'd be like, I, I could barely see that. There's a blind man here. That makes sense to me. Right, so, but there's two layers of blindness going on that helps us understand what is meant in the beggar and in the blindness of, of the physical ailment. Um, the, the first, consider simply the man who is physically blind. But look at what he's doing in the text. He is gathering the sensory information, right? As, he drew near, as they drew near to Jericho, or he, a, a blind man was sitting by. And look at his sensory work in verse 36, which is the only way that he's gathering information, right? He is physically blind, cannot see. Verse 36, he's hearing the crowd going by. So, so he's taking it all in. Right? And the heightened sensory ability of a blind individual to be able to like, function so clearly with their ears. I'm hearing a large capacity crowd pass by. But notice, we're already introduced to this man's perceptive abilities. Look in the passage very clearly. He inquired what this meant. Now, the, the introduction in verse 35 of there being this taking place in Jericho, there are, without going into all the historical components, parts, and pieces, the reality is Jericho is a major metropolitan context at this point. So, in other words, what heightens the sense of the man hearing a large crowd going by is this isn't the first time he's heard it either. It's not like, I've never heard so many people around here. This is exciting. I wonder what's going on. No, no, he's heard numbers of people pass by, and he is located in a place where he probably is able to beg, right? He's there begging, which would indicate that there's multiple people around whereby he can ask them for assistance and help. So again, it wouldn't be odd for him to hear a large crowd of people in Jericho, in a place where he can beg and perceivably get things from others because he knows they'll be passing by, to then hear this time and say, something is different this time. Now again, what that is, what the buzz is all about, not exactly sure, but this man's perceivable instincts is to say, hey, 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 what is this one about? It's different. So we have on the one hand, the first sense of blindness being introduced to us in this particular episode is the physical blindness of the beggar. But that, again, is not the only blindness in the text. And it is being introduced because we're to contrast it with the blindness of the beggar. He's not the blind person. But he is. He is, right, yes. But he isn't. There's more than one way to lack sight. And there's more than one way to be able to see. Notice a contrasting blindness um, that we see in the crowd. Look at verse 37. Um, I'll just read 35, 36, into 37. Um, so that you can kind of get the feel of the whole movement of the passage. Verse 35, as he drew near to Jericho, again, nobody's surprised. There's a blind man who is sitting by the roadside begging and hearing, this blind man hearing a crowd going by. It caused him, right? He moved, he inquired what this meant. Verse 37, they, 
That is, if we were to reach up, it wouldn't be the disciples at this point in time because the immediate referent is obvious, right? It's the crowd. It's someone in the crowd. I'm not sure who, who it is, but people on the fringes of the crowd see him, and then he says, I'm inquiring, what does that mean? And they, that is the crowd. So at this point, it's not the disciples still kind of not sure, not wondering, not, uh, you know, not clear on the details of what's going on. We've moved on to emphasize you and me, the crowd. They, the, the crowd, they told him, and look at the sense, of, uh, look at the detail of the answer. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, to be as fair as possible to the crowd, it is true that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. That's a factually true statement. It's a fair description of what's historically or physically occurring at that moment. In other words, they're identifying Jesus to this blind man. He says, what is the significance of this? Their thoughts about the significance of this is defined by location and reputation. Do you see? Think about it for a moment. What's going on with this huge event, this unusual volume of people and all of the buzz that's obviously surrounding it? The best that we can offer to the blind man at this point in time is defined by location and reputation. It's Jesus. All right? Hmm... How else could I define him? Well, the way of Nazareth. Oh, all right. He hears Jesus of Nazareth. Do you see, in the sense of the crowd's response, it's not false, but it's the other type of blindness. It lacks perception. That's a true statement. But it lacks perception. It lacks It lacks comprehension of who he is. In other words, it reveals the crowd's failure to understand and rightly apprehend not where Jesus is from or the things they've heard about him, but who he is. Again, There is a vital distinction between seeing and perceiving. There's no doubt that that is a fair and accurate response, but it lacks the significance of his true identity. It's the guy we've all heard about from Nazareth. But you see, no, the blind man is like, There is a major buzz. It's different this time. And so look at his response to their comment, verse 38. Remember what he's just been told in 37. You know, Jesus of Nazareth, the guy we've all heard about, factually true. The blind man hears the the terms Jesus of Nazareth, and look at his response in verse 38. He cried out. 
But when he hears that, he cries out over the buzz into the significant moment. Why? Jesus of Nazareth! Right? You think, yeah, that's what you were told. That's what you'd say. That's how he's identified. It's not the first time either. You see it multiple times throughout the Gospels. By reputation and location. That would be a fair response. But it isn't his response. He was just told who's there. And he heard it and responded by what that means. Do you see? Look at his response, verse 38. He cried out, Jesus. And look at what he says. Son of David, have mercy on me. You see, look at the further blindness of the crowd in contrast to the sight of the blind man. Verse 39, those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Do you you see who is blind? It's the people who can see. There's only one exercising sight, and it's the man of blindness. Because Luke is saying there is more than one way to see. And there's one, more than one way to lose your sight. They see physically Jesus of Nazareth, and that's fine and fair. But the blind man who cannot even open his eyes to see He sees in his mind, in the name and title of Jesus, located in Nazareth, he hears it's the son of David. Just to give you a little window into what the perceptive ability of that is that he's exercising in the title. You have to say, he doesn't say Jesus crying out, Jesus of Nazareth. He cries out, I know who that is. It's the son of David. That is, as a blind man hears the name Jesus of Nazareth, he perceives and sees with eyes of faith the promise of God. What promise? The messianic promise that David would have a son and he would rule over Israel forever. He would bring peace. He would rule over a righteous people made righteous by the king's own strength. He hears that. No, 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 no. It's it's Jesus of Nazareth. You just stay there. Jesus, son of David. We told you it's Jesus of Nazareth. I know. And he is the Messiah. He's the son of David. And then they further embrace their sense of blindness. You be quiet. Stop it. He's got more important things to do. You don't even know who he is. You see while you do not perceive. Because your heart has grown dull. Just like Isaiah said. No, we're the ones with sight. You're the one begging. No, you can't see anything. It's not just a man from Nazareth who is a wise wisdom sayer. He's not a seer of our time. He's the son of David. He's God's promise. He's a fulfillment of the covenant to his people. 
Look at the man's plea. Again, in the tapestry of Luke, this isn't the first time. In fact, it's not even in the nearest proximity. We, we have heard this language as well. Look at what he says. Verse 38, he cried out, I know who you are. You don't know. You can't see him. Oh, I see him so clearly. He, he, Jesus, son of David, ruler of Israel, Messiah of God, promise keeper. Have mercy on me. Now, again, notice where we've seen the plea for mercy already as well. In verse 13 of the same chapter. This is not new. It's forcefully coming at you in the society of the church. There is a plea we must make when we hear the preached word. There's a plea we must make when we hear the name of Jesus that is rightful, that is true, that is an exercising of saving faith that rests upon its truest object, and it is a simple cry of have mercy on me. Look look, look at the same instance, right? You remember the, the Pharisee, verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, thanks for making me better than everybody else. I know that was a kind thing to do. And look at what I've done with it since. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. I really am doing something unique. Thank you for making me so unique. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, like the blind man, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And hearing that there was a crowd going by, he inquired, what did this mean? What's going on over there? It's unique. It's not like everyday hustle and bustle. They told him, Jesus, the historical figure, the man of Nazareth and reputation, that's who's passing by. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Because that's what he does. Because that's who he is. Again, notice the urgency of the man's faith. He's the only guy in the crowd who can see. And it's displayed in the urgency of his faith. Look at verse 39. The display of the arrogance and the blindness of the people who can physically see will not extinguish this man's faith. Verse 39, and those who were in front, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He beat upon his breast. There's only one response I can have in his sight. Have mercy on me. And those who were there in front, right near the center of the group, rebuked him. Are you kidding me? I'll rebuke you. You can't see. No, you can't see. But he cried out, Look at how Luke writes it. All the more. The more you put your finger on me, the more I shout over you. He persisted. It's urgent. I can't see, but I'm the only one who can see. He can help me physically see. And he can save. He's from Nazareth. Yeah, I know, as prophesied. He's the son of David. He's not just a historical miracle worker at some point. Some exerciser of the demons. He's the son of David. He's God. So I plead, 
have mercy on me as the object of my faith. The urgency of the man's faith. And this is not unique. This is why it confronts you. The urgency of the man's saving faith is not atypical. Like, wow, he really must have had some secret spiritual sauce. He really wanted it. The rest of us, we're more dignified. We're more calculated. We get it cerebrally. And then we think on it, and maybe we take some of it. The, the urgency of his plea is not atypical. It is a typical response of saving faith. It is you, you have to exercise mercy toward me. I can't bring anything. It's the tax collector identifying the exact same thing. Well, I can come because I tithe twice a week. Either which way, keep it to yourself. For me, I don't bring anything. I beat upon my breast. You have to exercise mercy to me. Because I'm a sinner in need of salvation. Be quiet. I can't. I know my need. You can't even see. Oh, but I can perceive. I can apprehend. I know my condition better than you. Oh, I can assess your condition right now. You can't see. You're a beggar. That's not my darkest condition. Indeed, I would love to have my sight. I'd love to see acquaintances, some who have perhaps even passed by and helped me. I'd love the folks who have given me a couple of coins here or there to pass by one day and see me missing. I'd love to see them and give them thanks for the things that they've tried to provide for me. I would love to have my sight. But that is not where I'm greatest burdened. The greatest burden I have is I need mercy. And there is a man in your midst who can do it. Yes, yeah, Jesus of Nazareth. True. But that simply says where he's from. I can tell you who he is. He's a son of David. Israel's Messiah and Redeemer. You see, for each of us to consider just for a moment, Saving faith perseveres. It will not rest until it rests upon its true object, its terminal end, its terminal point, who is none other than Jesus Christ. Be quiet, be quiet. He insisted or said all the more. He shouted out louder and louder. That's a picture of saving faith. St. Augustine, famously, and I'm sure you've read it because it's famous for a very good reason. This speaks of all men. That's why the preaching of God's word goes out to all peoples because the baseline for its authority over all people is that all people are created in the image of God. This is an authority over all peoples. So Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself. Not a few of us, 
but that all, the chief end of men, would be to enjoy God and glorify him forever. This language of Augustine says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. And look at this. He says, And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Be quiet. I can't. Stop shouting. I shout all the more. My heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. He's from Nazareth. He's the son of David. You can't see. I see far more than you. As Luke is trying to remind us, there is more than one way to lack sight. And there is more than one way to be able to see. Look at Jesus' response. It's very predictable as we look upon our Lord and the work of the Gospels. Verse 40, and Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, hey, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus is responding to the man who rightly identified him through faith. Son of David! That's me. Have that man brought to me. What do you want me to do for you? You know who I am. That is faith. What do you want me to do for you? And of course he says, Lord, right? Lord, son of David, king over Israel, redeemer of your people. Lord, let me recover my sight. And again, it's predictable. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. And here's that statement of saving faith. Your faith has made you well. You were able to see without seeing. It's your faith that has brought you these blessings this day. The Lord's response to saving faith is always the same. Compassionate provision. If you doubt that you are a believer, if you question where does my faith rest, I would urge you as Luke is trying to drive each of us here, let it rest upon Christ and Christ alone. He is its terminal point. And trust as you acknowledge who he is and you assent to that truth. Trust in it. Rest upon it. Rely upon it. All you will receive is compassionate provision. Cry out to him. Son of David, have mercy on me, the object of wrath. Shield me. Provide for me. Mercy. And he would say, what do you want me to do for you this day? Have mercy on me. And he would say, your faith has made you well. Finally, look at his response, which is the response which is, again, typical of saving faith. Look at the man's response. And immediately, he recovered his sight. No surprise. Why? Because 
he spoke to the son of David. He knew that was going to be the response. That's why he yelled, even though they said, be quiet. No, get out of my way. I want to receive my sight, and I want mercy. So have your sight. I'm shocked. No, I'm not. I cried out to you because I knew that's who you were. So there it is. And then look at verse 42, or 43. Again, the fulfillment of saving faith. Where does it go from here? It goes to Jerusalem. It, it goes to take up your cross. That's what he did right here. He followed him. Luke, Mark records that he followed him on the way. On the way to what? The triumphal entry is next. He's a disciple. He received mercy. And saving faith, he responded in obedience. That's the mark of every true believer. You follow. Just for a brief moment, move over to Luke 18 uh, earlier in the text. Just as we kind of conclude, look over at, at seeing this contrasting picture uh, of the discipleship of the man of blindness, who now is the man of sight, praise the Lord. Verse 22, look at verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, because you're supposed to remember these two texts together. One is fulfillment and blessing, and one is absolute tragedy. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. I'm offering you promise. Act on promise. Come. Look at the final text, the final words of the text. This is what I'm asking you to do. Fundamentally, exercising faith is this. It's following me. Right? Come and follow me. Verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, son of David, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight then. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. Sell all that you have, follow me. I'm very disappointed in you, Jesus. I thought I came to you for advice and help. And you simply told me to become poor and follow you. Not so with the eyes of faith. I'll follow you wherever you go. Follow me. I will. What do you want me to do for you? Give me sight. Give me mercy. Your faith has made you well. Follow me. I will. Look at the very last portion of our time together. And for this, I'm going to conclude. Land this plane in Mark 10. So let's go to Mark 10. Look just briefly at the same scene recorded in Mark and see the beautiful portrait of this blind man. Remember, everyone, remember, there is more than one way to lack sight. Do you see that? And there is more than one way to see. Look at the portrait that Mark paints. It's really awesome. Verse 46, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, 
the son of Timaeus. So he's given us some background information, so on and so forth. Was sitting by the roadside. Same scene. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he did the same thing. He cried out all the more. That's a critical detail. Both record it for your sake of understanding faith's perseverance. He cried out all the more, son of David, I know who you are. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, hey, take heart, get up. He's calling for you. Look at this piece in the text in verse 50. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. The rich young ruler. Give away the things that you have in this world and follow me. I can't do that. What if you gave away everything you had and all you had left was me? Would that be enough of a return on your investment? No. But to the eyes of faith, the same call goes out. And faith perceives in the call life-giving nourishment. The blind man, you get it, right? The blind man doesn't have anything to his name. Mark records it. He has a cloak. And in light of coming to Christ, what does he do with it? Throws it. Nothing in this world do I bring. I'm out of here. Hey, get up. He's calling for you. Are you kidding me? Wow. He ran over to Jesus. This will not stop me. Cloak is gone. I'm out. It might slow me down. Give away all that you have and follow me. I cannot do that. He went away sad. And this man went away redeemed. I might only have one thing in this world but I'll go with one less thing in this world if the return was redemption. I conclude the text just by reading verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Look at the way that Mark ends it, as Mark then moves directly into the triumphal entry. And immediately, he recovered his sight. And immediately, same reference, followed him on the way. This is the activity of saving faith. 
it rests on no other idol. It rests on no other object. It rests on Christ and Christ alone as its truest object, its only deliverance. And then it hears the call. Let go of everything you have and follow me. And faith obeys. It follows him. As Mark says, even if that means following him on the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its instruction. We thank you for its brilliance that captivates our minds, our hearts, our emotions, puts us well in the world of the Gospels, that we might be identified there. Do You pass by us here at Redeemer. You pass by us every Lord's day. Do we as a people see you as the son of David and cry out for mercy?